Hi, and welcome to the Thank God for the Beatles podcast. If this is your first time, welcome, and if you are returning, it's great to have you back. I'm Karen, and joining me today as co-host is my brother, Jeff. Hello, everyone. And we love the Beatles. We are brother and sister, and, and for our entire lifetime, we do nothing but talk about the Beatles and their influence on us and their inspirational aspect to our lives, and uh, we were so very excited to uh, finally get the chance in November of 2021 to watch Peter Jackson's um, Get Get Back movie or ep- episodic movie that it was shown on Disney+. Plus. And, and by the way, I thought I would mention it's been a while since we've done a podcast because... Oh, because I needed to take a bit of a health hiatus needing uh, new bionic hip parts and um, the recovery involved from that. So uh, I think actually having watching this watching this documentary really helped my convalescence. I think the Beatles have magical healing powers, folks. So um, it was great to be able to sit back and take it all in. Uh, we took it all in on our first uh, time, sitting with our 91-year-old mother. Poor thing. She had to suffer through that with us. But, <laughs> but... But because it's long, it's it's a in in its entirety, its released version is seven hours. But what an, an amazing seven uh, hours! I thought it was more than that. Oh, at least at least that. No, I think it was totaled about it's two and seven. a half hours each episode. No, not each. Um, it, I think the first was longer than the second. And, I just I just rewatched it for oh, the third seven. time. Maybe added it. I know, who knows? I guess who knows? But seven out of, hours. But out Whatever. of but out of actually, uh, <laughs> but Peter Jackson had quite the task. He took. Um, about 56 or 57 hours worth of, of footage com- and then totally restored it beautifully. And so it was quite a wonder to watch that. I think it was a little strange that it ended up on Disney Plus because I wouldn't subscribe to Disney for any other reason, particularly because I'm just not into that kind of programming. But it was quite wonderful to take that in. And then um, on our own on my iPad while I was recovering uh, from surgery, I was playing the movie again in each segment of it and watching it again. So it's been that long, I think since about December, since I've actually seen the entire film. So I also have the uh, get back documentary companion book, which adds a lot of context to it. And I highly recommend for those, of course, for those fans that don't already have it or haven't already seen the get back documentary in its entirety. uh, The companion book is wonderful. It has amazing pictures and it has uh, the entirety of the dialogue in each, in each section. So, um, you know, if you, if you love the Beatles, then yes, you can sit there and watch them battle it out over chord changes and trying to get the harmonies right. But if you're a casual fan, someone like our mother, it was a little, I think it could be a little challenging to watch that much granular detail into the lives of the Beatles. And you might be thinking, wow, this sounds like shit <laughs> yeah with with, dimin- with diminished hearing yeah i know but uh we had a quite wonderful experience watching this and i hope and i know there's been a lot of commentary out there already on that i've watched a few on youtube last night and i was thinking okay there's a lot of effusive praise about it uh i think that peter jackson of course being the, an ultimate fan like we are uh he wanted to provide as much detail and context because uh the original film michael Lindsay hogg had uh put out in uh, 1970 uh out of necessity was what 90 minutes or minutes and, and it didn't really provide it, it seemed a little grainy and it seemed it didn't have and the sound quality wasn't as good in that and that time i think they used only two mics 
uh, to capture the conversations. And for dramatic purposes, I think that he emphasized some of the uh, disputes in, in within the band or just normal disagreements, I think, that any um, band of four strong-minded individuals would have. So... Um, and I think I, li- and I like Michael Lindsay Hoggins. He's brilliant. He worked with the Beatles on, uh, Hey, rain, paper, rain, Hey Jude, Hey Jude, and right. I think revolution. So, Prince. I mean, he, he comes with great strong filmmaking or video making bona fides and he had a lot of grand ideas. And he's also, I think known as the a son of Orson Welles, the great director. So but not, not verified, not verified, but I think it's been re- pretty much rumored or almost established that he in fact was, but he, uh, he, but at least he was, I think he was trying to be a positive presence in, in terms of the film, but, but the way, but the way the Beatles remembered that there was a lot of reluctance. Why 50 years to, to make this project? Well, I think you would know that too. They, they didn't want to make it because it seemed like a depressing period. They characterized it from his film as being a depressing period because it released in April of 1970 when the beginning of the lawsuits and the, and the separation of the band, they tended to associate it with that. But when what we're actually seeing in January of 1969 is yes, the, the group was growing out uh, away from each other as because they were becoming more individual, like individual lives. And so in that, in that context, they were still, ha- and there was, and there was still a lot of banter and fun to be had and I think that when Jackson looked at the material, he saw something else entirely. Uh, some of the yes, and I would say that there's a lot more laughter and banter and, and love between them. However, there's still tension and it, there's stress. And in watching it now three times, and the first watching, I was like, "Oh my God, Michael Lindsay, get out of there!" You know, it was just so like. How just stop asking about Tripoli and having it in, you know? Oh, yeah, yeah, he just wanted stop. It. But you know what? In hindsight, now he's a filmmaker. He's trying to get the best showing, the best visual, the most exciting thing that is that is equal to their worldwide fame. Right. And he's a right. super fan, and so right. he gets such a bad rap. And to be honest, as I watch this, you see the love that he has for the Beatles and the wonder, and he wants to know. Like between John and Paul, when did you stop writing together? Like, how was that? All that he genuinely wants to know. And what is his job? His role is to create something of interest, which we keeps coming back through the episodes. Which is what you know. I got a lot of nothing here. You know, I got a lot of going in circles. And as Paul said later on in the piece, he said, uh, "What are we making a documentary of us making an album? You know, that's not very exciting." But I would say that uh, it would be another discussion to compare the original let it be which i don't have a problem with i have a boot i have a nice bootleg copy that has about an hour of extra footage mm. i may i love the let it be sessions because i have the sweet apple tracks bootleg which has tons of stuff it's four albums of that i've listened to that for years and when i see this it's uh listen Peter Jackson also edited things around, and he created a story as well that was probably it's more interesting than what we really see. There were times when I was watching the first episode and I'm like, oh, I'd like to fast forward through this, which is shocking because I just like to look at them all. And to me, Paul looked, this is my favorite Paul period with the beard, with oh, the visual, vests. Oh, visual, right. You know, I know. He's just he- like, it's like, 
like I, I, I like a cat in heat. What can I say? I don't know. It's like, oh, <laughs> you know, oh it my was gosh. just okay. like, I'm like saying to my mother, isn't he beautiful? Oh my God, is he so handsome? Because well, he looks nice, <laughs> you know, and then of you know, we're all the, um, the superficial things, the shallow things. Oh, look at John's greasy hair or Yoko sitting there and Yoko looked very nice and was, you know, from what we saw was, She's just sitting there, but reading. You had knitting. mentioned something about the surprise of being on Disney. The bigger surprise is that you know Disney. I think initially did not want to have curse words, and Peter Jackson held the line and said, "No, no, no, that they're going to stay in." And the smoking, oh yeah, and the drinking. I mean, they're <laughs> they're drinking at lunch. They're they're drinking in the evening. They're oh, there was, drinking a lot. They were smoking. They were drinking. They were telling telling off color jokes. You know, uh, the song where he says, I've got a feeling. And then, you know, the, the first joke was John says, I've got a heart on, you know, yes. and then, then Paul just went with it. And so the, they, they were hysterically funny. I mean, so they tried to make the best of a situation where they're all having to get up earlier than they're used to folks. I mean, these guys would get up and come to the studio in the afternoon and work until the wee hours of the morning. That was their typical schedule. So because of the nature of fil- the filmmaking, um, having a camera first and being aware of a camera does change and alter, I think, the medium that you're expressing yourself through it. It changes the, uh, the entire um, way that you operate because you're more self, you might be more self conscious if you're not used to having a camera around. So, one no, and tra- they were having fun with it of playing into the they camera did. like they John, did. like making all the faces. Yeah, and then they did. They Paul did. All moon eyeing it. You but know, of course, they were also complaining, ah, oh, you can't make music with the. Yeah, with the film on, you know, and John says he can't do it with this at eight o'clock in the nine o'clock in the morning, whatever it is. You know, he used to, they're all moaning about getting up early. I think one early session in Twickenham, George says, Well, I think it was almost daylight and I hadn't slept yet, you know. And then, of course, they say, Come about, Oh, I'm not going to do, I think it's a good idea we don't do the show, you know. <laughs> he's, he's already trying to play curmudgeon and, and put the kibosh and everything, and then he would smile, you know, because. I don't think he was all that comfortable being. Some people were more comfortable being on camera. Paul obviously loved being on camera and playing to the camera. Some he was aware of it, but he did that. But what I think some of the best conversations that we get out of this documentary are the fact that um, Michael Lindsay Hogg, being clever as he was, pulled one on over them by uh, when the red light of the camera that indicates the camera's on, he would have that taped over, but leave the camera running. So when the when the cameraman would step away. To be able to think, ah, oh, we're not being filmed, you know. So then they would say whatever it is they would say spontaneously without the camera on. But the camera was on, and he also had hidden mics set up uh, in other rooms where we hear uh, bits of conversation, intimate conversation between uh, John and Paul. No, oh, you're talking about the clandestine lunch? The clandestine Actually, lunch. Actually, again, that's kind of out of context because from, from what I understand that Linda was there, Yoko was there, and Ringo was there. You're right. But it's... Again, it's Peter Jackson's film. It's right. his vision, and it's right. focusing right. on the discussion between the main people. But the idea is that there was a lot, great deal of spontaneity in the film. Um, you get to hear, the, you get to genuinely be a fly on the wall. That's the, what's what any uh, fan or audience would want. I thoroughly enjoyed that aspect of it. So you hear all the jokes and you hear all the banter going on. And, and uh, just noting is their energy. Ringo, so calm, collected, just there. 
I think sometimes bored, but listening. And, and he's so patient when Paul is trying to tell him how to drum. Oh, he's watching and but he's taking it in. But I mean, Ringo, after watching this, you have to realize how great he is. He's the greatest drummer. He's used to Paul. I mean, he's used to like he can. T- he doesn't care. He's a professional, so he's willing to take direction. He just wants to know what do you want, and he wants to accom. He's very. I think he's just very accommodating in that fact because he knows what his role is. Um, and, and Paul's energy to me, I would describe it as kinetic. I mean, it was the the parkour where he's like climbing the chains, then he's like swinging from the other thing, and then I think in the episode three where he kind of like steps on the chair and jumps over it. I mean, he's constantly moving. And John's energy is a little more low key, but he also got up and danced and kind of did his silly walks and his mugging. I mean, I think if I had to spend time with John and he was on like that all the time, that I might punch him in the mouth. Well, John was always on. Even even Mick Jagger described John as always on. He says you could be relaxed around him, but then you really weren't because he would take the piss out of you in in two seconds if you if you said something stupid. So anyway, John. It was like that. His energy was always either on, or if he was, or he would retreat into. Or he's always doing sarc- sarcastic or funny things, and to me, it's just like that's exhausting. Uh, exhausting after a while. But that's his. That's his defense, I think. And here's Paul trying to. He what he said he didn't want to do. He's producing and arranging, but I don't want to do that. I feel you know, stress. Well, but he's, who was going to do it? But then who? But who ends up speaking up and says he's not comfortable being boss, but plays boss anyway? Is Paul? For instance, Michael Lindsay Hawk says, well, well, let's go to this amphitheater in Libya. And then Paul and, and then Paul says, well, I think Ringo says he's uh, he's not, not going out his, of the country. He's putting he's put his foot down. He's not going around. So I guess we'll have to go and get Jimmy Nickel, which was a substitute drummer. You know, he's half joking, but he basically is telling him, no, I don't think that's going to happen. But Michael Lindsay Hogg wouldn't hear of it. He kept pushing the idea on and on until he found out that they were definitely not into that. So then they talked about, well, it's cold in England in January. And yeah, that's all right. Trying to get an E seventh when your little finger's frozen, you know. So they're talking in the first in in, in the first setting in the first uh, Twickenham. section. Twickenham Studios was in fact a gigantic uh, studio Movies. Movie, movie set movie set. Yeah, and with just the isolated. So is they're in this huge space which had really no character, no sense of intimacy. So they're in a strange place, and you know, you'll find that. You know, they're coming in, trying to make the best of it. They weren't all that comfortable with it. They were getting used to the idea of being on film. But one of the sections I really love is when Ringo comes in, and he has a little bit of a song, a bit of a song. He's, he's trying to write something or come up with something. Uh, wasn't that an apple, though? Uh, no, I think, no. This happened in Twickenham. It was a Friday, January 3rd. And he walks in and plays and, and goes to the piano. And there is a piano in Twickenham. Yes, yes. Right, and of course, and he, and he walks over and starts... Uh, you know, Paul was playing, uh, the, Paul and Ringo, they're the first to arrive, and then Ringo's playing a song called um, Taking a Trip to Carolina. Oh, that's right. And and he never finished it, Garth, and we never hear it finished, but it was a good little piece, and I was surprised of Ringo's p- piano playing ability. I didn't know, I knew that he did Octopus's Garden. He could play rudimentary, but he still could figure right. things out, because remember when they played chord. the little, Paul played Good Morning, Richie, or whatever, Ringo, and then they started playing, j- together. playing the thing on the... Thing that was pretty good. That was very good, actually. But that was ba- very entertaining. Right. Back to the Twickenham, which is That's- George. You know what's amazing to me is a they don't have any guitar stands. They're like laying their guitars around. Right. They're uh, don't even have comfortable chairs. Like I think George is sitting on the side of something, and he's got like a cushion. 
He's sitting on a cushion and they've got their tea. They've got copious amounts of tea and toast and marmalade. Um, but when, I, when I'm thinking of George, George just seemed out of sorts to begin with at Twickenham. Like, what are we going to do about, are they bringing in the set? What are they bringing to record us? Like, he is, he is very logistics-minded and very money-minded and very practical. Like, what are we going to, you know, how are we going to do this? This sounds like it's going to be very expensive, more about putting the people on the boat, getting them to the, you know, he's thinking <laughs> about the practical aspects of the show, of doing it. So he's thinking, this is going to cost a lot of money. Who's going to pay for this, you know, and, and, and. Of course, Lindsay Hogg is, he's just the ideas guy. He doesn't care what it costs. Filmmakers tend to get money they want from some source or other. But the Beatles are thinking, well, am I going to have to, you know, George thinks this coming out of my pocket. He doesn't like that idea. So he, he didn't, he didn't really want to. And then it came down to what, doing a TV show. And then that didn't really happen. Paul had commented that he didn't like, I think, how a TV show sounds. I think that there was something in there about that he wasn't complaining to Michael Lindsay. He's not happy with how a TV show would sound. Um, but it is interesting to watch. And as they're, you know, um, John and Paul, Paul trying to help structure. Right. I think, don't let me down. Well, right. What if we did this? And what if we did this? And then they had those kind of sing backing vocals, you know, like sing singing the part of it back to it, which... Thankfully, they didn't keep in. Well, not everybody w was really participating in the concept of the meaning of what this was going to be. I mean, that plays off the idea of what were they, what was your, what, you know, Michael and Tiago is trying to figure out what is your plan, guys? What is it you're trying trying to make here? And in those discussions was uh, Dennis O'Dell, who was the uh, head of filmmaking for Apple. for Apple. And you had, of course, George Harrison there. You had George Martin there and Paul, and Michael Lindsay Hogg, and uh, George Martin. And uh, th I think this was uh, one difference between the book and the film is was this part was edited out, but if you look at the book and Yoko's trying to make a positive contribution, giving and throwing in ideas, you notice that John is absent, or at least not in the dialogue. He's not speaking. And she comes up with this idea of, well, why don't you know we... Have empty. Why don't we have empty chairs and have a series of empty chairs? That would be more dramatic. And of course, uh, that later on, after patiently going through this, all these you know out, far out ideas, George Martin chimes in and says, "Well, I think if you to get rid of an audience, there's no point in doing a live performance. It's like going into a recording studio and doing one take." And so. So then what kind of audience? Well, then we'll have Michael Lindsay. I said, well, how about a select audience? So she's she new because so how about kings and queens? And then, and of course, George Harrison says, uh, it'd just be our lot. It'd just be our luck to try to get, to get a lot of cunts in there. You know, he would say, <laughs> because he, he's the type of audience. It would be the audience that he would like, in other words. So um, playing the realist, I think that was interesting how the conceptually they're trying to work all that out, but they never really did agree. I think the the conflict in in the film is how individual they had all become and where they were at in terms of what they wanted to do or didn't want to do. They really couldn't agree, and even Paul would argue with himself about what does he want it to be. And I think later in the third section, second or second or third section, he still would have, he would suddenly be in these doldrums. And like you said, Karen, putting on his pouty face because this 
particular wasn't coming together the way he thought. He wanted 14 songs and he wanted to put it all on on film or TV. And then they cut it down to maybe let's do seven songs live and then do seven songs not. And they were just weren't getting enough songs together to get into the schedule they wanted. And then finally, well, the and, roof and, and Paul keep uh, Paul remarking that we need like the the daddy figure to keep us structured. Well, you know, they're just jamming and they're playing, but they're really, you know, it, maybe it took a long time to get these songs into form. Right. And so we're witness, witnessing this, but maybe that's how they operated before. I don't know that... Uh, we don't really know, but I have a feeling that they were able to take chaos and then meld it into something. And a lot of times their inspiration would come from just goofing around. And there's a lot of, of wonderful goofing around, actually, a lot of fun they were having by playing all these old tunes, and then they would seek into something that they were working on. and, and Well, the, there was the fun part with, um, and maybe, I don't know if George had left when he had his little uh, fit and split. Oh, yeah. Um, but what they're doing, Get Back, and John and Paul are like, uh, was it, wasn't it before they got the Sweet Loretta? Yeah. Martin, they were going through all these names, and yeah. JoJo, and then they're talking about, yeah. finally they get to Tucson. And John's like, is that Tucson in Arizona? He goes, yeah, yeah, it's where they film. Was the Chaper- High Chaparral or something? I don't know. One of those shows. Right. Exactly. But yeah. it's. Uh, they, but when George got up and says, um, I think we should just forget the idea of the whole show, smiles, George. And but, but he. I think well, he was just so. It seemed that he was just so much under stress. I mean, worshiping Eric Clapton, he's so good. And then Paul saying, you know, he's playing some jazz stuff. It's not that. I think I feel I interpret it as Paul saying maybe it's not that big of a deal. You're making him too good. He's playing a jazz. No, no, he's you know. Well, Paul could be a little dismissive too, without realizing he was being dismissive. He's not always sent. And John had this issue with Paul. You know, Paul could be a little insensitive when he was pushing for something, an idea he wanted, and not Paul not intending to be that way. But I have a feeling that um, what was my point? I'm just about to lose my train of thought. Excuse me. Um, all right, keep talking, and I'll come back to me. Sorry. I think that you were talking about uh, dismissing, being dismissive of, I don't know what the idea we were just talking about. All right, about. yeah, Paul's being dismissive of George, I think, when uh, when George would mention, like, the band. He he had gone to see Bob Dylan and the band, and he was saying how great they were, and, like, you know, and now Levon Helm is really a guitar player, but getting on the drums, and how loose they were and their favorite song on the white album was don't pass me by. They were kind of that vibe and they, um, and, and then Paul would just go, yeah, great. But then he would move on. He wasn't really into it. Well, he's just not interested in what others. I mean, I think that he views them as the greatest of all time. And it's like, why waste time talking about the other folks? But you notice that throughout the episodes, they've got like Rolling Stone albums or they've got Smokey Robinson albums and they're kind of looking at And they would hold up the albums and, and show And look at it and they would like, Yoko took one of the albums and like put the cigarettes on top of it. And by the way, Yoko and her steno pad and she's reading like letters that probably people wrote to John. I mean, and she's sitting there and, and she's just, you know, she's, from what they edited and what they showed showed us, Right. You understand that people would say she wasn't obtrusive and she wasn't breaking up the Beatles. And my point about Yoko being in the studio, this is John's choice. He right. wanted her there. He yes. was in love with her. They were yes. in love. Mm-hmm. 
But it's not like it was the first time she did this. She came in during the White Album sessions over the summer. She'd been with them while they, you know, they recorded the White Album through October of 1968. This is nothing new. Why are they having a, right, a only, freak out about it now? It was only maybe a two-month break between when they finished the White Album and were starting this project. So, and, so why and, are they now, all of a sudden, it's just, it's... Um, well, Paul, this is the first, they ask about Paul and John writing together, and that, that question was explored. He says, well, we kind of stopped anyway because we were always in the same room, and now we're not in the same room anymore, uh, and together all the time, like they used to be. And there's Yoko's presence there. And if it came down between choosing Yoko and the Beatles, John obviously would choose Yoko. But then... Um, and it's perfectly understandable. I think Paul could see the writing on the wall that John had found a new creative partner, someone that he cared about a great deal. So he would say that it would did no harm having her there in the studio, but having her there in the studio at her presence, just being there, it, it was a change. Uh, so then of course the other Beatles would bring in occasionally their wives our girlfriends, or at least Paul's fiance, Linda, right, and kids. And you would see Heather, you would see Linda, and Linda would have some a few things to say in the film as well. I mean, they were all offering their ideas. But Paul basically could have th that conversation where he was talking about, well, if it's a choice between that, you know, remember that when they John came in late and went after George had left the band for a few days, and Paul said, and then there were two. Which was a scene that was edited out of context to give it more dramatic flair. Right. Because if there is a YouTube channel, I think it's something like Breathless 365, where he has the unedited version of what they were saying, and it's a little bit different. doesn't matter. It's still what it is. But, you know, you get, you get Paul with the tears in his eyes and Linda sitting there and Ringo looking up at the sky. And I think Neil Aspinall is there and Michael and perhaps Glenn... Tony Richmond, the camera, or maybe the cinematographer. I'm not quite sure how they would describe him. But Paul, when you listen to Paul talk, he really is quite a reasonable guy. And he is, uh, it's a word prescient, I don't know, that he said if 50 years from now, if people think that we broke up because Yoko's sitting on an amp, because it's laughable. And He's right because really there are so many deeper issues between them right. of creativity and of ownership of songs and of what was going to happen in the future of different four men wanting different things. But he he laid it out and he said, this is who John is. Well, look at the context of their adult lives before they actually came into this project, right? Uh, Paul had spent time vacationing in Portugal uh, and with Linda and, and was establishing his relationship with her. Okay. George was spending time in the U.S. producing uh, Jackie Lomax, an Apple, one of the Apple artists on their label, and also going up to upstate New York and meeting with Bob Dylan and the band. So that was his experience away, and he had a great time with them. So it was like a change for him. So coming back to the Beatles is like going back to maybe a job that he wasn't quite as happy with because his songs weren't getting recorded. And he's also probably getting a lot of... Um focus on him with Bob and the band, like, hey, George is here, and he was he's like getting more attention. The star. He's getting positive attention and it feels good. Right. Right. He's not getting he's getting the affirmation, I think, uh, and the confidence that he seeks. Because he really, although not as prolific as Paul, he was building uh his own that's right, his own collection of, of great songs. Of great songs, exactly. 
Uh, so there's so when you come into that atmosphere, that's why I think he turned maybe a bit uh, bitter, can, cantankerous, sour, you know, in some ways, but still plays along. He'd be playful and funny. You know, George is a Pisces. You know, he's got those moods going. But he was particularly moody, lack of sleep. And then the other context of John having just been through a marijuana bust, okay, and, you know, and having, and Yoko having a miscarriage. So there was that drama going on with John. So he came into that project. So he, they, they all coming from, in other words, my point of all this is that they're all coming in from different spaces. They're all adults and they're starting to separate themselves in their adult lives and growing out of, the band uh, from a group of guys having a good time making music to a group of guys that were in it because they need money and the business and they've established themselves and then became this, uh, these icons in the eyes of their fans. And so there's all this additional pressure put upon them. And I think that that was fairly evident in this, um, that the, any source of conflict or way they dealt with things like John's either total distance and being quiet and letting Yoko speak for him in some occasions or, and then you have, and then, and then he would be coming in and clowning around depending on what's happening with him, his moods. He it says he got his, uh, Yoko's gotten her divorce. He's free. He comes in. He's which, singing. Which was the happiest happy, he looked. Happiest he looked. In all of the episodes is when he's, he, the, uh, she leans over to kiss him and they kiss. And then he announces that just learned that Yoko's divorce has come through. And you know, the, just as a side note, that it cost him a lot of, you know, hundreds of $100,000 about to, to get that divorce for right. her to pay off debts and to pay off the ex-husband. Right. He wasn't, he, yeah, the John John was just a reflection of what was going on with him personally at that time. And so he comes into the job and the, there would be real beautiful moments when he's coming in. He's being, like you said, he can be annoying when he's being playful and he's clowning. But I think that's what also gets his creativity going at the same time. Because when he's enjoying himself, then he'll start thinking of ideas. He comes up with these clever phrases, but John always had a facility with words. So he was able to come help George come up with lines. For instance, um, when George was writing something, something and presenting yeah. that to them, he says, well, I've been working on this for six months. You're right. And, uh, and I said, what is this? Attracts me like a, Pomegranate. Uh, Pomegranate. And John says, well, keep going until you, you know, you come up with it like a substitute or like a, it attracts me like a cauliflower. And, you know, and you're, and of course we get to play in the audience, you know, we're, it's like a video game and you're, you're a participant in it you know, as an audience member and you're yelling at the, yelling at me, no, 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 like no other lover. And, and, other lines that they're not getting, you know, so no, it's Jojo wasn't, and you were correcting them because we already know the song as it completed. Because I think it was in the get back Jojo Jackson or something. It right. Was- Jojo Jackson. So you were, we're, we're filling, we're kind of tr- filling the spaces because we're trying to yell at them to say, no, no, this is it. Come on, George. So, but John, but they were trying to generally help each other when they liked the song. Uh, they tried many takes of all things must pass a number of times and it just didn't gel with them. Uh, My interpretation and other people on YouTube have different ideas and perspectives. But, you know, when I see that, I just think that even the Beatles, John and Paul, look like they're trying to be helpful. But there's a disengagement about it. A certain disengagement, because remember that it used to be an ownership of the majority of the songwriting going to John and Paul. There's a financial aspect under undertow of all this, but there's George getting what two songs per album if he's lucky, and 
you know, now that George's star is rising, his abilities are improving as they go. Um, he's obviously feeling more frustrated that his creativity isn't improved, but he's not getting the recognition from his older brothers, right, in the band, who he sees and he looks up to, and they're his friends since they were 15, but he's not getting that acknowledgement. They're still that locked into that. So he was, you remember he talked about, he, he told John openly, he says, well, I think I should make an album of my own songs. Oh, so you going solo? And they think, but I thought that would be a great idea if they'd all coked into it. John was doing his own little projects with Yoko and Two Virgins. And What I would say about that moment, and I think that was in, I, I don't even remember what episode, two, end of two or the beginning of three. Right. Where he finally has the nerve and has the courage to go to John and, and Yoko's right by the side. Paul has left for a meeting, don't know where Ringo is, and... George is like, well, you know, I have this collection of songs and I think I'd like to do my own album and it could be mine, but then we could come back to the Beatles things and Paul's going, yeah, yeah, I see what you're saying. And Yoko's like going, yeah, do it, because <laughs> Yoko, I think, is invested in splintering the group because uh, I will recommend a book. If you enjoyed really? watching this, you should watch, um, is it the book? And in the end by Ken McNabb, I think, the one that I gave to you, Jeff. All right, I got about half Where he through. talks about 1969, but he really dives in, into the business end. And right. it really paints a different picture, which I won't go into now. But episode one, George leaves. He He's upset. He gets into it with Paul over what to play. Right. And... Then afterwards, they're, you know, Yoko's wailing. It's like they're getting all their frustration out and they're just having this super jam and screaming and, you know, and, it's, and then... And I think Paul plays drums on that because and Yoko's doing her warbling and her singing and John's playing and they're having a good... They're just getting their yayas out and having a good time. Uh, and I'm, I'm really glad that, you know, Paul participated in that, uh, in that jam. He was happy to go along with it because he wanted to make John happy. He wanted to keep John in his sphere. He didn't want their partnership to break up. That well, was who are you talking, John or George? I'm Wait, talking who? Paul here. Oh, okay. But Paul here is playing drums. And I think when, um, you know, George was absent. So, and, and John, you know, he could really be sardonic. Sometimes he, he would say some things that I go, Hmm, really? Like when George left, he said, well, John was trying to play realist and say, well, maybe we could get Clapton. We'll just get him and then return it if George didn't come back. Well, but in hindsight, after this, and we see John, how John is treated and things that he's said, he said, he's maybe lacking a sensitivity chip. He could be. Sometimes he'd be lacking the sensitivity chip and he'd accuse you of the same thing. But, you know, John had good advice, though, for George. He'd say, well, keep at it, you know, until you get that verse, although he wouldn't always follow his own advice. But I didn't know he meant, his heart was in the right place. I think he meant well, but you know. And it was a very touching scene where they're like underneath, it looks like the, a silver railing or whatever. And it's Ringo and Paul, I think, hugging. And then John comes over to hug. And at the very last minute, here comes Yoko to get in on the hug as well. And then I think they leave it that, uh, you know, that there wasn't a good meeting at Ringo's house. The first meeting didn't go well. So that. The, the opening, I believe, of um, episode two is when they start to come in and they're sitting down and they're just mm -hmm. kind of the, the talk right. of who's doing what and what's happening. Right. I remember that part. And then I want to talk about a couple of the heroes of this movie. There's, I think that uh, people that are coming in trying to break, to make the atmosphere even better uh, and put the Beatles at ease and do everything they could to facilitate a great recording. And one that was Glenn 
Johns, who uh, ended up producing a lot of Stones records and other records um, down the line, uh, became a, a very well-known producer. Maybe Eagles, maybe Led Eagles, Zeppelin. I'm not and sure. Glenn Johns and Led Zeppelin, right. And he was trying to take these tapes, random tapes, and put and make something of it. He eventually did make a tape uh, or mix, but the Beatles didn't want to put that out. But eventually, now we if you get the Let It Be new remixes um, that were done by Giles Martin, which I'm not too keen on some of the mixes, but he tried to he did pretty fairly decent job. But Glenn John's disc is included in that package, and it's it's quite a, a revelation. Uh, I love hearing Long and Winding Road without all the layers, you know, lush, you know, strings and and choral uh, singers. That little bit of overkill by Phil Spector, but that was Phil Spector's thing. I mean, that Phil Spector's style, they should have known that going in, that, that he's going to produce. I mean, when he produces, he adds his own flavor. He did that with Across the Universe. He did that with uh, Let It Be, added, at the brass and strings and stuff. He would add all that. He layered it on a little bit too thick for some of our tastes, but I thought he did a fairly, give credit to Spector, he did a fairly decent job, and then even Lennon said, well, he took a pile of rubbish and said, and turn it into something at least. But Paul but did I, not like that. I the thought long that, and winding road. I we thought were, that Glenn Johns was amazing. Yes. What a wonderful temperament. Yes. What a competent guy and you know george martin wasn't really invited to be a part of it but he ended up coming out just kind of being like the liaison and the fiasco with the equipment when they moved to the apple studios because of of magic alex being a total dum-dum right uh a, a sham really. incompetent uh, he was incompetent a, he's a sham yeah another john production Thanks. <laughs> but, and, you know, maybe he was just great company for John. And John, that's what it was more important to him. Right. But a he lot of money a lot of money was spent on Magic Alex from Apple. And that's, and see, there's, the, there's no money product. thrown away. Remember John's choices of people that he, he just, if he liked you, you were in. For instance, Stu Sutcliffe, who couldn't play bass, was originally in the Beatles earlier. The, the whole point is that you had heroes like Glenn Johns who came in and tried to make something of it and help make the sessions move forward. And I'd say one of the other heroes, and, and George Martin played... Hung back, but did chime in more like an executive producer than the actual producer. And then you have Billy Preston brought in, I guess, uh, happened to be in the area, brought in by George. They were talking, you mentioned earlier to me, they were talking about Nicky Hopkins. Paul was saying maybe if we, because Fender provided the Beatles with the great um, amplifiers and then the Fender Rhodes came in, the beautiful, oh my God, I'm looking at that thinking, oh my God, how wonderful to have that. And John's trying to play it. A little bit and um, do the fills. Yeah, George, like, George's George Harrison says, "Well, you know, we could bring in somebody." And he, I think, he already knew maybe that Billy was in town. I just get that sense that he was, he, he was going to let it go. He was going to let it. He was going to bring it in a little bit later. Like, oh, yeah, we got did. Billy to come. Well, here. they brought Billy, and Billy was busy doing other tours and the stuff. So he, they didn't really plan to have him in sessions. It wasn't really that formal. It was more, "You want to play with us?" and you know, he was in town saying hello. He came in to say hello. They had worked with him before in 62. And then he really added magic to the sessions. And now it's the first time on a Beatles record that they would say the Beatles plus Billy Preston. Well, there's and, a wonderful moment when he has a fill. It could be for I've got a feeling I don't remember what song. And then you just see Paul's eyes light up and he smiles like, oh, man. Billy just enhanced, he, he, he just was scaffolding them to greater height. I mean, when he came, everything changed because 
he made the the music sound better. Oh, sure he did. Uh, I think that they plus he had a very pleasant demeanor and attitude, and totally totally a pro and great musical instincts, and can catch on immediately. And he he was brilliant. He played on on all the tracks that he played on. He added something to it uh, that fit to fit the song perfectly. Uh, and they all got along with him so much. They liked him so much that, of course, John and George are throwing out the idea. Yeah, let's. We think we need a fifth Beatle. And Paul says it's hard. It's something to the effect of it's hard enough just with the four of us, you yeah. know. It, and then John just kind of nodded or something. Yeah. Well, why would we? In other words, why would we want to flink, inflict ourselves on Billy here? But Billy was playing a couple tunes. I think that ended up on his solo record. So Billy was a great, so he's a hero in the film. And I think Paul himself, we don't give him enough credit um, for, first he had tried to give up the, at first he was feeling despondent, giving up on the idea of the TV show. What are we going to do? And who, who was it that came up with the roof idea? Who proposed that? That was Michael and Glenn Johns in the episode where they're, they bend down in front of Paul because Paul is saying, we need a payoff. There's no payoff. He's upset because it's just boring to him he wants to have a big deal and then they say that and you can see he gets excited about it but back to paul in this movie we see again not only how practical he is he's a reasonable man yes he's mr bossy boy sure. and he had he has so many songs it would be annoying if you're in the band he's you know another day her majesty right Backseat of my car. I just wrote this this morning. Teddy and Glenn, Glenn John, Johns is watching him. He's just like smiling and in awe. Right. But Paul. Um, Teddy boy. Teddy boy. <laughs> right. I mean, oh, darling. Right. It's just. Songs know. that ended up on Abbey Road. You, you get to see what I really love about uh, this release is you see the germination of the beginning of Abbey Road, not just the songs that yes, ended up was, on Get Back and the, Let It the Be. The sessions were commingled. She came in through the bathroom window. Yes. Mean Mr. Mustard. Right. Um, stuff like that. But back to Paul. When Paul had the idea, he goes, what if we were doing TV? And in between the songs, there's like a ticker tape of the scrolling below of the most immediate news coming through. And it's just in between the songs and it just keeps wrapping around and at the end it says the Beatles have broken up and I was telling Jeff this morning I said that to me is like the forerunner of a Twitter which is it this, presages Twitter yeah I mean he was a multimedia genius really I think, you know the news is just con rolling 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 he, in he was thinking on another level it wasn't just about making a record he said okay boring okay we make records we do that all the time for him you know, that's that's what they always that's what they've been doing since they stopped touring. But they want to get back into getting back into performing either with an audience or doing something grand, doing something different, some media that their audience would appreciate. He wanted to keep the Beatles going. He well, was fully invested in it. Paul and, also at one point said something to the effect of a begin, I don't want to produce, I don't want to be the producer. You know, and here I am having to do that. But then he said, what I used to do is I created these artificial structures like Sergeant Pepper's someone else, magical mystery tour. It's like another thing. So it's not him doing it. It's like they're becoming this other characters. And I thought that was brilliant too. I mean, yeah, he does have self-awareness and I think he catches himself, like particularly with the hidden lunchtime conversation. He's going, I know, I know, you know, you're so da-da-da-da-da and you're telling us what the, I know. 
I know. I mean, I think he gets it, but it's hard to control himself because he's a creative genius. It's spilling out, and it's like, keep up with me. And honestly, I think that Paul, I mean, watching this now, it's like I, I do feel sometimes that the Beatles were like his backing band. And I, I appreciate and understand how the rest would feel. And John recognized that immediately. He picked up on that. He said, you don't feel bad about talking to, you know, telling us what to play or what not to play. It's your song. You need it. You know, step up says, well, but I don't want to be into the boss thing. If to be honest, I've been doing that and blah, 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 blah. Well, I think John made a good point is, you know, if you want us to play something, tell us because that's what it's come down to. They're individual songs, they're writing uh, and how you want it done. So, that was the approach, and I just don't think that uh, John was already starting. He, he want, at first, he said he was in bed. There were lines in the film where he says he is invested. He wants to be a Beatle, and he wants to be, be at least at that time. I think that later on, after Abbey Road, then he'd had enough. I think he was having more success with his uh, forays into... Um, Electronic, the, the music they were doing. They were doing with Yoko and other projects outside of that and gaining and and, and gaining a new direction. He said, okay, enough of the Beatles for me. But that came uh, within many, many months after. So John was a bit mercurial, could change his mind. But at the time of this, of this filming, yes, he was still very much a Beatle, very much wanted the music to be good. He just didn't think it came out that good and he didn't like being filmed, but he got over it. And he was having a good time. So John was just dependent on his situation. He was very much like that. Paul was very businesslike and focused and his trying creative to like energy. Her, he's trying to herd the cats. Right, he is. He was a cat herder, and, and even Ringo would acknowledge that. Ringo is just a professional, showing up when he shows up and doing his bit, and he's quite wonderful and lovely in this film. He's just there. And- so sweet. He's so kind. There's a great scene during Let It Be and Heather. Like they're wearing, it looks almost looks like they're wearing matching outfits. And he's playing, and she has some drumsticks, and she's hitting the hi-hat, and actually she's pretty good. And yep. he is so calm, so kind. I mean, God bless him. I don't know that I would have the patience for Heather rolling around. She's wearing Glenn's um, furry white coat. She's laying on the floor. <laughs> she's like imitating Yoko. It was, it was very cute. In the movie, maybe a little too much for me. She's combing Paul's hair and <laughs> brushing his hair. And by the way, I have a new nickname for Paul. I call him the beard puller. I mean, he's always pulling his beard. At one point, Min, uh, Michael Lindsay Hogg said something like, well, you know, this is a movie about nose pickers and something. And <laughs> it was obviously edited out. There is some interesting clips of uh, Paul always picking his nose. Oh, but that's, no. That's not in this. It's not so nice for us. Uh, I, I, I don't even want to go there or think about that. But, but. you know, they left out Bisami Mucho. They left out, um, if you see some of the bootlegs, some of the other things. And there's in the original Let It Be, when they're doing Two of Us and John and Paul are like, are standing at the, standing at the mic and Paul goes, good morning or something. Or I know it's, I've got a feeling, I think. I've got a feeling. Right. Right. I, I, that's one of my favorite moments of the original movie. But, you know, Peter Jackson wanted to do something different. Other great moments, I think, in the in this movie, when Ringo, George Martin, uh, Michael Lindsay Hogg, they're talking to Paul, and and they're sitting down like in front of the oh, the wooden door, and Paul's wearing a green shirt and black vest and his pants, and Ringo goes, "I farted. I just wanted to. I just wanted you guys to know that." And 
Paul smiles. He walks away. He's drinking his coffee. And then he, I think George Marshall said, well, thank you, Ringo. <laughs> so funny. And I'm just like, oh, my God. You or, the, know? or he would mug for the camera when, when uh, Heather would come up and crash his symbol and he would lack all startled and stuff. He was a, he was a comic. He was, he was, remember, Ringo, I didn't mention what he was doing. He was make, wanting to be a movie actor and exploring that and going to make he was set to film the Magic Christian. That was part of the crush, crunch of their schedules to accommodate Ringo. So yeah, he was going to make a, a film and be a comedic actor. And I think Ringo had some gifts in that area. I don't think the Magic Christian turned out to be as great as they wanted it to be. But speaking of that, do you think that they should have left in the scene with Peter Sellers? It was just so awkward. Yeah, I think that it was fine Could they have to cut see. That or no, not really. I think that they had a pleasant conversation. It's you know an, an actor. I mean, they, they all admired the reason they left it in, I think, because they all looked up to Peter Sellers because of the goon show and their experience and, the, and his comedy. So they respected him. And, you know, he he was def, he was pleasant and deferential. You know, was it a little awkward. Yes. But that but actors are actors. I mean, that they, 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 he had a whole different vibe that he brought to it. But yeah, they left that in because that's part of the scenery. I mean, he came in, and the other people who came in uh, that we didn't mention, uh, like Dick James, the uh, their publisher, one time publisher for Northern Songs. Oh, and, I know, showing them the all the songs that were available, and I'm, you know, here's the light bulbs going off in Paul's brain about buying music publishing, and and the covers of Obladi oh, oh, Oblada, some American artists had done it. So there, were, he was mentioning other people covering their songs, and someone I think covered uh, John's song "Good Night" from the White Album that Ringo had sung. So there, there, there's he's bringing some news to them, and so there was you see a bit of the interplay of what's happening. So I think Jackson, in his editing of the, of the documentary, wanted to include some of the uh, people that were on the periphery involved with them and came in. Oh, and he included Alan Williams, who was the first manager, was sitting in the corner, Robert Frazier, which he kept showing up, which was, I was telling Jeff, I just, I I don't know. I mean, he was a friend of Paul's. He was the artsy fartsy guy, but I wonder if there was something, some other connection. One thing we haven't really talked about, and I don't really want to talk about it too much, is like the notion that, John's on heroin, I mean, and that it was spaced out or whatever. I mean, listen. I didn't really pick up on a lot of that. How do we know? We don't know. I, I, I'm, not, I'm not familiar with people who've done it, and I, don't, and I looked at his behavior, and sometimes he didn't seem like he was dysfunctional, at least in the movie I saw. So, he, Well, you know, it's, it's, to me it's the least interesting part of it. It's right. far more interesting to watch them interact and the power plays and... To counterbalance, I mean, I know we've kind of painted George like cranky, cranky man, cranky George, but, he but really, really he, there's a sweetness to him. Right. When he said, could someone go get me a lace bow tie that I can clip? And they did. And then later on, he said, you know, um, where are some good shoe stores? And they're like on Bond Street. And Bond Street, I think, has all the high-end night shoe stores and right. stores now in London. Right. And said, he said, well, maybe someone could... I haven't been in years. Maybe someone could go bring me some black slip-ons, size eight. That reminds me when he's reading from the Beatles fan magazine and and critiques of George's uh, clothing and his you know, that he would he would mock it himself. So he he was having a lot of fun with that. And then Paul was reading from a periodical. Just too long. He was reading the article by the House Go guy. Too long, right. That was too long. long. Why couldn't they cut that? 
damn yeah, scene. That, that was, that a, was just, it was annoying. I was too It long. was because he was doing his funny voice and reading about Yoko and they're all just like, put, I mean, I hate to say it, they're putting up with him reading it. Yeah. I think they were waiting maybe for Glenn Johns or something to get the tape changed or whatever it was, but he, it was just so, going on. Another criticism that I have is the clenched teeth version of two of us. A little bit would have gone a long way. I kind of enjoyed it actually. Because it was very funny watching them do it. I mean, I think there's a little bit too much of that song before they finally figured out they were going to make it acoustically. But yeah, that was that that was a comical little bit. But I think Jackson just left it in there because, well, because it was funny. I, I just get that they knew they weren't going to use that take. So just to see them with their clenching their teeth being ventriloquists, I thought it was funny. But yeah, you're right. I mean, I could use a bit of trimming. That's just a matter of taste. Uh, but I, I really enjoyed watching uh, the interplay between them. And the most significant interplay to me between uh, John and Paul, how their relationship had been, how they had drifted apart, but they, but there were so many wonderful moments when they're looking at each other and they're laughing and they're, because they, they're all psychically tuned in to one another. They all anticipated each other. They all knew each other so well. When someone knows you that well, it, well, just to tag on that, a comment that uh, Alan Klein gets introduced, and it's John who's like, yep, yeah, I'm having a first meeting with Alan Klein and really like him, and, and well, he's trying to persuade Ringo and I think George, or maybe just George, but he's saying he really knows each one of us. He knows our everything about us and how we're doing it, and he's brilliant about everything, and like George just kind of... I think looking at him with interpretation, is that the word? I don't know. What's the word? Um, yeah, probably. He's just a little listening politely, but like, I think that he's a little cautious, cautious too. And did we, I don't know if did we, did we mention yeah. about Ringo the piece? Said, well, Ringo said he might be a con man, but maybe he's a con man. He's for us. But uh, Glenn John, we were talking about Glenn John's response to him. He says, well, I've listened to him. He's a, a really, a really interesting. He said he's a strange and clever guy. Strange and clever guy. But something that bothered Glenn Johns is that when when Alan you, Klein Alan Klein would be talking ask to you, a question ask a question if he didn't hear the answer that he wanted he would change the subject he would interrupt you interrupt you and change the subject and Glenn Johns stood up to to John and said yeah I don't like that that bugged me that bothered and me John was like well you know we're all strange dudes and but listening but you know John doesn't want to hear it like la 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 la. Right. And then John would would be having these extended meetings with Klein. And then, you know, this is, uh, if you read that book and in the end, you right. get a sense of what Klein is pitching, which he's, right. Klein, you get he's taken pitching in. a lot of the right. stardom for Yoko. We're well, going to give get, Yoko a show, but that's a whole nother Yeah, that topic. is a whole nother topic. But basically, you know, when John gets taken in by someone and decides that you're cool and he likes you, um, he becomes, he, he takes things to extremes. Uh, like he always does, and he will defend you against all comers. So he really wasn't paying attention. But I think that his lack of business sense that Paul, I think, had, uh, did have, didn't, it just didn't sit well. He, he, I think that was a regretful decision on his part. And that drove a further wedge between him and he and Paul. And there was another mention in that book he talked about. You were telling me about that he had that Paul had taken a little bit more of publishing. Well, let's talk about that another time. That's another time, but but, uh, uh, but the point is the the film is capturing this all this stuff. What I'm saying is that all this stuff is going on. Well, there's so much behind, behind the scenes behind that the we scenes don't know that we don't know 
that during those eight hours that were affecting the relationship. But yet through all of that, they, the amount of work, the amount of production, the amount of effort that had gone into making um, just this collection of songs and then following it with Abbey Road, to me is just startling, the amount of creativity that went into it. And I'm so thankful that at least that Paul brought in Michael Lindsay Hogg and brought in uh, Glenn Johnson, brought these other people to keep the Beatles going as long as he could, but also with the foreknowledge and, and the intuition, knowing that they were probably might end soon. Cause they did mention and George mentioned to him, perhaps we'll probably be getting a divorce. And, and then when then John says, and who gets the children and who gets the children? <laughs> exactly. So they're, it, they're half joking, but that's what they actually end up doing. I think they all kind of had an, uh, an, Almost, almost, almost enough, not quite, because not they quite. did. They're still having a good Abbey Road, but they still had Abbey Road to finish things off. But they were having a good time, in many times. But I think a, a lovely scene because I want to get back to the movie of things that stick with me is when Paul is sharing about the uh, film that he's made in India. He said it opens up with a picture of Cynthia and Patty and Jane, and here they, they're the, the exes. Beatles, Beatles they're the spouses exes. or exes, no, exes, right. exes. exes. And then Mike Love, and then there's a picture of Jane with Mike Love, and they're waving, and then he goes, the, the monkeys that are fornicating and humping each other, and he's saying, wow, and then the flare of the sun, and so he's always seeing things so creatively. We mean literal monkeys, folks, not not the monkeys, the band, okay? So, right. Right. And then uh, John's saying, and I, I think I have some reels too, and so I, I think that Peter Jackson brought maybe John's reels and then added like John Lennon's reels. I mean, I, I don't, <laughs> as like on top of the video, I don't know if that was. Well, that was very uh, artful the way that Peter Jackson had interjected. I'm, I'm glad that they did that. They that, did that. You saw some rare pictures. You saw some rare uh, video of them singing and, and looking at each other and walking. And I like that. I really like definitely that. that's, that gives context to the film and adds to that fly on the wall quality and seeing things that you have not seen before. I think that Jackson wanted to emphasize that aspect of it. And the Beatles basically playing all these, they, they said, we're wasting a lot of time here, you know, because they're not getting their songs done. But I think their process is they goof around and they play a great deal. And and throughout then, then the song comes out. That's their way of relieving tension. I just don't think they, the arbitrary deadlines they gave themselves didn't help. I think that the pressure of, of the timeline, and I guess maybe money had something to do with it, or Michael Lindsay Hogg and his staff, you know, they wanted to find out what do you want to do and let's get it done. And the, the indecisiveness of it all and deciding last minute to do something on the roof. Well, and then George didn't want to do the roof and then Paul really not being happy before R the roof, which was like, there's no payoff. And he's, and he's Ringo going, says, he goes, I want, well, let me interject here. Ringo said, I want to do the roof. And so, John's like, oh, I'll do the roof. Well, but, then that's it. They're doing the roof. And, and then the, there's a great scene where Paul goes up to the roof and then they're, they, so does Michael Lindsay and they pull him dragging him up. He's got the cigar in his mouth. And I'm like, at one point, Michael Lindsay Hogg was very charming. And he goes, well, you know, if you're going to film me, I hope you make me look thin or something to that effect. He was very <laughs> self-aware too. Right. And the cigar smoking and Paul smoking cigar. So let's talk about, the last performance and, and what did you think about like some of the split screens and the man on the street? I have to say that when you watch the people being interviewed on the street, the girls, the some of the older women, how kind they are and how loving they are. I think it's right. great, the Beatles. I love it. And most of the men, 
there's a one young guy who was a jerk. Yeah. And there were some it, curmudgeonly people. And they're the older, rich, wealthy They only wish they could, the, some of the comments were, I mean, they, they wish they could see them. Yes. Yeah. You know, you know, they wanted to see them. They, you know, they, it's good to hear them. They wish they could see them. So, and it was uh, clever of very wise of Michael Lindsay. He had 10 cameras in play and he had a camera across the street. He had a hidden uh, on top, I'm sorry, across the roof. He had a hidden camera in the lobby. They planned he a had the, did you know they planned a helicopter, but they then they last they nixed that idea. Yeah, they did, uh, yeah, there was going to be there a, was a whole talk about that. Yeah, talk about there was discussion about that. Uh, the people on the street, and then I think I've read some. Uh, critique that they'd wish they'd just see the concert. But honestly, I like seeing what people, I mean, it gives it more power because this is, I love seeing the scenes of London at that time. Right. And I love seeing how people dressed and what was happening. I think it's such an important point in documenting the influence of the Beatles and the, and how nice were the two girls who stood outside Apple every day and they asked him, what do you think about John and Yoko's relationship? And they said, well, you know, we're not, it's not for us to comment on. It's basically his choice. They were so reasonable. Right. right. So kind. I think that they represent, I think the, I guess the majority of most fans who say that, uh, no, it, it isn't really our choice and our business, is it? Right. Uh, they, they were very kind. Um, and I, I love seeing the reactions, both, positive and negative, you get a sense of what exactly what London was like. And I think that that filmmaking, that aspect of the, of the film and, and the concert itself, that's why it became a new, a new film release of just the rooftop concert. It became the imprint for other bands to follow to, Oh, let's do it in some unusual, do a concert in some unusual place. Uh, Again, the Beatles always ahead of their time. You two, always. You two back was in 1988 decided to do a repeat of that in Los Angeles. Uh, of a rooftop concert. So then it became, you know, concerts in other exotic places. So and in Greek amphitheaters, you see that happening now. Um, Elton's done that. A bunch of people have done that. So I think that that laid the groundwork for uh, adding some drama and theatrical element to the performance. I think that Michael Lindsay Hogg's influence there. I think he deserves positive. credit for the camera work that he did. Right. And, perspectives and um, listen that they were able to move all that equipment up there so quickly to get it to work to set up the monitoring of the in the control room for George and George Martin and Glenn Johns Johns. I mean they were in the basement and you're recording it so they didn't to see it they were they were managing the sound that's right and we get to see Yoko on the roof watching um, Maureen Starkey. Mm-hmm. Now the rumor has it that I guess that John might have, I'm not John, George might have had an affair with Maureen. All right, you keep mentioning that. I don't want to talk about time, that. At this time, but I mean it's. Who cares? There, as care. I notice it, it's like he's, George is always looking over at the ladies there. I'm so sorry, I, I, didn't pi- I didn't pick up any of that. But I thought what was interesting is how they put the hidden camera at the entrance where the policemen that are younger than the Beatles come in and having this discussion, trying to do their jobs. Of, oh, but George Martin, when he piece. walked in, he went right to the camera and smiled. He knew. <laughs> he knew it was, very, he knew it was, it was there. That's yeah. funny because he knew it was there, but uh, the cops didn't know that. So yeah, by the time they got upstairs, they'd already gotten off about six or seven songs. But isn't it great that two of the songs from, was it just two or was it more? It was, um, I think I've got a feeling that landed on the album. Right. And there was... One after 909. Correct. I mean, and it sounded great. 
Yeah. It's amazing. Oh, yeah. Now, the version of Get Back, though, which surprised me that they did on the roof, wasn't the same version. Of, these sections no, of it they were did edited. the one that was in the Apple Studio. In the app, they did. They selected the one in the Apple Studio as a final take, and then that was released as a single. How but, about other favorite moments, watching Paul strum the bass and then in front of uh, George and Ringo and coming up with Get Back and Ringo tapping out and, you know, he's writing George a, hearing He's it. writing a song, like right in front of them. He's writing a song right there. He's just skiffing and just like, it. and then Paul getting excited, I think, with um, Old Brown Shoe. I think he oh, liked that. that. A great he, moment. He liked it, and he just, just jumped on the drums, I think, and he wanted to get into it with George. George Harrison was very excited. He said, I finally, I come up with a fast one. All my songs have been slowish lately. He said, I wrote these slowish songs. And it was fast one. I think it's really great. And he's starting to show the chords, and then they're trying to help him with the chords. And then I think Billy Preston's trying to help him. What chord is that? And you see them doing a song. And they ended up recording Old Brown Shoe. And I think that was ended up being a B-side of um, Ballad of John and Yoko. But that's a great song. Uh, that's one of my favorite George songs of all time. Uh, but the Beatles did a great job on that. And you can tell when Paul likes something, he's enthusiastic. He just jumped right in there and he had that great bass line in it. I think uh, I think that George came up with the bass line originally on a guitar and then Paul kind of... Imitated it on Not quite bass. sure. I've never... You know, there's, uh, I think there is debate, but I do think that Paul did play it. But... Paul enthusiastic, and then even you have to kudos go to George for a great version of "For Your Blue" with um, John playing the Hawaiian slide with the right. guitar with the light um, lighter as the slide piece. Fantastic, fantastic! Yeah, I, I love that. And you mentioned that uh, what was his other song on "Let It Be" on that on that album was I mean, I mean mine and they waltzing yes and that was cute right that's in scene. the let it be movie i don't know if i saw that in peter jackson's that was done no. after the fact john was not there for that i think he'd left the band at that point right but that was included in the album um and you get to see snippets of, of course him doing long and winding road and so many other songs that took that were just beginning to take shape uh that some ended up on solo records for the meals and some ended up on abbey road you didn't quite know, they didn't quite know themselves where all these songs would end up, but they had the groove top was great. Um, I dig a pony. That was one of the songs that they did from the rooftop. And you, you get to hear the context from the let it be album where it's like, well, we passed the audition. You get to see that in the real moment of the thing. Sweet Loretta fat. She thought she was a cleaner, but she was a frying pan or something you know? like that. And yeah. then one yeah. of my favorite moments is when Paul is talking to the young Rody, who's helping, and he's at the piano. Yeah. And the guy wants to learn piano. He goes, well, this is, you know, and you can learn. All music can be done on the piano. I mean, it was so, I don't know if he was playing to the cameras and doing that, like, nice, kind Paul, or if it was just genuinely, yeah, yeah. get a piano. And remember, they had that little song, and better my piano, something, there was something that he sang with Ringo. Better my piano. Yeah, they're, 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 I forgot they're, what it was. They're just vamping on, on the piano. Talking about written my, my piano, they were writing a song. It was a nonsense song, but it was like very entertaining to see them t together. I would have liked to have seen more of the when they went back after the rooftop show, and you got to see them in the control room listening to the playback. That was such a touching moment. I might have wanted to see more of that. And there was a great moment when Paul and Linda are holding hands, and their close up is on their hands, and then Ringo puts his hand in, and then. He and Linda are like playing patty cake with the hands. I mean, it was so, Ringo's so funny. It was so charming. They right. looked so happy. John looked happy. 
Right. Yoko looked happy. Right. And I would have liked more of that. They were enjoying, I think for a lot of the sessions, once they got to their own studios in Abbey Road, they were starting to enjoy not, themselves. Not Abbey Road. Um, Apple. Apple Studios. I take that back. Sorry, folks. Um, Apple's, Apple Studios, they were enjoying themselves. Once the sound problems were resolved, they went in and they just had, they were jamming, they were playing, they were getting, the songs were coming together. They had fun. And think Paul did describe that the Beatles did their best when their backs were up against the wall. So he created um, artificially a situation where, okay, lads, I got all these songs and John, do you have any where you keep writing, you know, show us more material. And then, you know, gives them a project, sets a goal the goalpost is moved. The goalpost is changed. So then they have to adapt to that. They have support network around them. That's wondering what the heck is going on. And it's the same. So, so chaotic, but maybe that's how they came up with music. So I think the theme of this is that out of the chaos and out of being, figuring out these are, and these are all men, young men under 30. Remember, they're all very young men at this point. They've grown up together, creating this music, and the amount of productivity going into it. And yet it seemed like they weren't getting anywhere, but they did this, how they, maybe that's how they created it. It's just out of, out of chaos and discussion and out of the, of the jamming, like with um, the jamming, John singing, I need you. And that's like the precursor to, oh, wow. I want you. And then, and then Billy Preston singing, I had a dream and right. he was doing that whole thing. And it's right. like, what, uh, right. What uh, fertility. With these guys, there's just so much. Right. So they were able to take any born. little moment, they would take a moment of something and then turn that into, it ends up sometimes that ends up becoming a whole song. So that's. And there was such a tight unit. There's a part where uh, they, where Paul is trying again. He wants the 14 songs. So they're going back and forth. And it's John and Paul talking first. And then George Martin comes over and he goes, well, you need, you need a deadline. And. Paul says something like, uh, I'm talking to John, John and not you, which I thought was a little snarky. Mm. You know, that's Paul can be, I think, again, they're just, they're superstars. Then they're, he could be a little. Prima donnish. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's, so he said, that's why I'm talking to John and not you or something <laughs> to that effect. <laughs> right. Yeah. John, John was a completely he was so funny and such a goofball and it, it, john was mugging it up he ended up being very happy time for him being in love and uh he was trying to be his most optimistic and best self for it and paul was the one that stressed over the quality of it wanting to make it good he wanted to get something accomplished and george um he adapted and went along and made positive contributions. He he needed he had stressed he was stressed out. He took a break from the band, came back, and then had a great attitude about it. And brought and Bill helped bring Billy Preston in. Billy had a great, super amazing attitude, and I think so. Things the stars just seemed to align for this to be to work out in the in the long run. This just that we're looking at let it be and we're looking at get back this project as you know as an audience seeing a process we're not used to looking at artists making process and most artists will tell you they don't want you to you know well my song's not finished you know they don't want you to hear or see what they're doing in the process because they don't want the judgment that would hinder them from creating but that was very brave of paul and the beatles to allow themselves 
to be to recorded. To be seen with their pants down, essentially. To be seen with their, right, seen with their knickers down, seen with their pants down, uh, in the process of what it takes to have a band and make a record and what they were actually like and not what the image, the mop-top image that the people had adopted them from the previous films. And this became, and John Prescient said, this is the third Beatles film. And indeed it was, and now it's even more than that. So after 50 years of being in the vault, I'm so thrilled to see that this project had come out. And I hope that all of you just subscribe to Disney for... A couple of weeks and well, I think that the I think that the DVD is on delay due to audio problems. And I did read something where Peter Jackson said that there's nothing in the works yet for like the director's cut, a special bonus things because Disney hasn't approved that. And you know maybe Disney's like this isn't our jam. We've 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 gotten what we can out of it, but but it has been pulled back. So I don't know. I hope that they do something. Will I buy it? Of course I will. Oh, yeah. But uh, one final note is that after the rooftop performance, Paul sent a postcard to Ringo. And it said, essentially, you really are the greatest drummer. And it was the day after the concert. And I just thought, for all the fighting, for all the fussing, for all of the wah, 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 and God knows behind the scenes what other big drama they were, which we didn't even talk about Linda at all. No. No, oh, well, but, not enough but, time. But, yeah, but. Linda was lovely. She, you know, kind of just did her own thing and let the child run wild. <laughs> um, and he was going to marry her in a couple months after that in, in March. So there's a lot. There was a very tender scene, and I'll wrap up on this because I'm only obsessed with Paul, is that when he was stroking her hair and he was listening and he was stroking her hair and holding her. And I thought, you know, we, we witnessed something very special there, which was John found his partner, his life partner, and, and Paul found his life partner. And it was uh, very sweet. Yeah. Yeah, it's very sweet. Um, and I had a good point to make, and I completely forgot what I was going to say. So I'll let you finish with that and have the last word. But I would say... Well, this is our roundabout scattered shot views on what we saw in the movie. It's not a scene by scene breakdown. It's just kind of what strikes us and what we think. And uh, certainly delighted that it finally arrived. You've been waiting for so long and loved it. I do hope that there's maybe some more, you know, I don't know. It's, it is, I've watched it three times and that's probably enough for now. I mean, I might go back and watch the original Let It Be movie. Mm -hmm. So I think it would be good to contrast Right, but that's other people are doing that. That's a whole nother talk, and uh, we hope that uh, you enjoyed it as well, and would love to know your comments on your favorite moments from the Get Back movie. And uh, didn't even talk about the IMAX thing that's being shown. I mean, there's just so it's overwhelming. Right. right. And if you're a Beatle fan, what a great time to be a Beatle fan. Yeah. And, uh, so, and thank hope. you so much for listening. Thanks. We'll see you next time.